All year, the pandemic has exacerbated Toronto's existing housing crisis into a full-blown disaster. Today, case numbers are worse than ever before. Businesses continue to be locked down or forced to fold. Many are unable to work, and some are fighting eviction from their homes. And the people who have managed to find shelter while still maintaining social distance in tent encampments across the city are constantly trying to hold on to the little they have in the face of bureaucratic pressure to leave. Unbelievably, when one man, Khalil Sievright, started building mini shelters for the people forced to sleep outside, the city ordered him to stop or pay the cost of removal. An outdoor community fridge in Parkdale, where people could leave or take food as needed, was shut down by the city, citing a bylaw meant to prevent children from being trapped in abandoned appliances, something that hasn't been a problem in my lifetime since the invention of a magnetic fridge door. And the people in the encampment say they are constantly being harassed, even going so far as to allege their tents and belongings have been sabotaged. In response, they've held multiple rallies and awareness campaigns to draw attention to the crisis they feel they are facing alone. The city has made efforts to address this crisis. But is it enough? Are the people affected by it being heard? And when everyday citizens, frontline workers and volunteers just trying to help devise creative solutions to an absolute disaster, can the city in good conscience stand in the way? This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting my way through Lockdown the Sequel, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we try to understand the issues faced by Torontonians experiencing homelessness in a global pandemic, what the city's response has been, and what it needs to do better. For this, we speak to Kathy Crow, street nurse and distinguished visiting practitioner at Ryerson University, and Zoe Dodd frontline harm reduction worker and co-organizer with the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. But first, Danya Majid is a staff lawyer with the Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario. She tells us about evictions happening during the pandemic and the push for a moratorium. Stand by. Danielle, I wanted to start off by asking you uh, the kind of work that you do with ACTO uh, as a staff lawyer there, especially during this pandemic. Oh, wow. We do, um, or I do a little bit of everything these days because, you know, the workload has definitely increased during the pandemic, but not uh, our staff complements. So mm. uh, we've been dealing, you know, doing some litigation. We've been running a bunch of campaigns around unsafe uh, evictions and sort of, you know, campaigns related to recovery. Uh, We've been working with um, members of the clinic staff across the province, doing education sessions, letting them know changes that are happening. 
supporting them in their work, especially as the landlord and tenant board is transitioning um, to remote hearings and and, uh, virtual hearings, you know, taking calls from the public, you know, doing work with media to explain the changes and what the landscape looks like. So a little bit of everything. Right. And, And so to take listeners back to the beginning of the pandemic, because it seems like a million years now. Early on, there were calls for eviction moratoriums, and and briefly there there was in, in I think March. Yeah, so um, you know before the pandemic had started, I mean Ontario, Canada already had a housing an affordable housing crisis, right? And tenants were already precariously housed. They were paying unaffordable rents for their units. They were facing you know bad faith evictions. Many of them are working in precarious jobs that don't offer them benefits or paid sick days. So the tenant population was pretty unstable to start with. And the the housing stock was uh, very much restricted, if non-existent, when you're talking about unaffordable housing. And then the pandemic hit and everyone was told, you know, as the first thing to do is isolate at home. But that presumes people have a home to isolate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, initially the government passed an order uh, to put a pause on evictions um, at the landlord and tenant board and stop the sheriff from enforcing evictions. This happened quickly. We commended them for doing that. However, in July, unbeknownst to anyone, despite our attempts to reach out to the government to figure out what their plans were to lift the moratorium, Unbeknownst to us, they decided to change that order to uh, amend the end date for when the eviction moratorium would be lifted. And instead of it being, you know, resuming, you know, with the normal operations of the courts, they tied it to the end of the state of the emergency in in Ontario, which uh, for us was basically the end of July, which meant the eviction moratorium was lifted. Bill 184 was passed and the landlord and tenant board all opened within days of each other with very little notice to uh, tenant advocates or the tenant community. And now evictions are proceeding in the course of a second wave of the pandemic, and we are seeing our clients and clients throughout the clinic system being evicted into homelessness. Right. And when you say Bill 184, that the name of that legislation is Protecting Tenants and Strengthening the Community Housing Act, which uh, some people are saying is kind of a misnomer because there are a lot of aspects that don't necessarily protect tenants and 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 they argue actually jeopardize their their housing. Uh one, one thing that seems to be a common complaint is uh it means that landlords can evict tenants after just a mediation instead of a full landlord uh, and tenant board hearing. So uh, are you seeing that is that affecting your clients at all? Well, it definitely got, you know, those provisions around section 206 definitely got the bill renamed to the evictions bill by tenant advocates. Mm-hmm. And it's actually worse than the way you described it because people are evicted not after a mediation, which um, usually happens at a board and with a board mediator, which, you know, that is something that existed before Bill 184. Mm-hmm. What actually the bill did was change the law. So, before the tenant even ends up at the board in front of a mediator, but they could be evicted if they signed a repayment plan with their landlord, you know, after the landlord had filed the eviction application, uh, if they entered into a repayment plan with the landlord without the supervision of a mediator, without supervision of tenant duty counsel, you know, if that if that repayment plan um, contains what we call a Section 78 clause, which means you could be evicted without a hearing uh, and without notice if you breach any of those terms in that repayment agreement, 
that is basically the concern that we had because who is telling the tenants what a section 78 clause is if they right. don't notice it so as a result of this have you had people coming to acto to to try and navigate this this legislation well in terms of the section 78 clauses i mean we you know the ex parte we call these ex parte orders mm-hmm. they are definitely being issued currently at the board but a lot of those ex parte orders because of the backlog at the board, are from matters that predate Bill 184. However, we suspect as the Landlord and Tenant Board is rapidly gearing up and ramping up their scheduling of hearings, they're going to get through that backlog really quickly. And we expect to see more of those ex parte orders that are resulting from the repayment plans created under Bill 184. Right. And I imagine you're still trying to continue a dialogue with the provincial government. Uh, I understand they have some federal funding that some critics are arguing they're kind of sitting on at the moment. Uh, what would you like to see from them? Like, how, how would you like to address them, especially as we're going into what looks like a, a very nasty second wave of the pandemic and winter? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I mean, you're you're right. Like, you know, the second wave is not you know, hasn't plateaued yet. Um, you know, the numbers are still going upwards in the wrong direction. And winter is coming, which means a lot of those people who've been evicted um, into homelessness are are sleeping in tents right now. Mm-hmm. And, sh- you know, the, you know, the shelters are crowded and we've seen outbreaks in shelters. So we're not looking to, you know, ram people through the shelters. So this is why us and other advocates have been calling for reinstating the eviction moratorium mm-hmm. until we have an opportunity to stabilize the, you know, the public health crisis in Ontario and the affordable housing crisis in Ontario uh, to make sure that people aren't evicted into dangerous situations that will lead to further community spread of COVID. So we have tried on multiple occasions to reach out to the Ontario government to talk about the eviction moratorium, and it didn't work. Right. Our calls were not answered. Um, so now we are in litigation. We are before the courts trying to uh, bring the tenant perspective to the lifting of the eviction moratorium in hopes that we can get that order reinstated. You know, we have been in communications with the landlord and tenant board to try to, um, you know, alert them to the problems at the board because, you know, the technology isn't working, tenants are being sent to the wrong hearing rooms uh, and missing their actual hearing um, and getting evicted, you know, getting evicted without an opportunity to participate in their hearing. Many tenants are complaining they're not even getting the notices of hearing, alerting them that they actually have a hearing. Mm-hmm. And all these things are are leading to, you know, unjust evictions. You know, we are willing partners. We're, we're happy to provide our expertise, share our knowledge that, you know, from what we are experiencing on the front lines, on the ground with the government, with the landlord and tenant board mm-hmm. to make sure that reopening happens in a, in a safe and fair way. And we want to see them continue investing into affordable housing, making sure that people who need homes have homes that they can actually shelter in safely during the course of the pandemic and and after the pandemic. And in terms of actually litigating the idea of an eviction moratorium, what's the process for that? How does that, uh, how do those wheels get spinning? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Big question. Um, It's a very kind of a procedure, a very legally procedural heavy type mechanism. Um, We're like, we're challenging the amendment in July that changed the original order that changed the end date from, you know, from the resumption of normal operations at the courts to 
the ending of the state of emergency. Right. So we're challenging that decision to amend because it was done without notice to the public or, you know, tenants, you know, anyone who's directly affected by that. They were not given any notice that this change was going to happen. And this was despite our office and others having, you know, contacted the government expressing our concern with this provision. It also didn't account for the evidence that we would have, you know, if we were there, we would have provided the judge with our evidence about why this end date is not an appropriate end date and maybe proposed better end dates, one that aligns with public health recommendations. So it's 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 a motion that, you know, the, the term, the legal term is we filed a motion with this court and we are hoping to have this motion heard in December. Okay. Well, uh, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. Now, Kathy Crow has been on the front lines of the housing and human rights fight for years. Her work as a street nurse has earned her the Order of Canada. There have been a lot of motions at Toronto City Council to try and address the housing crisis this year, and we asked her in October if these efforts were effective, and if they go far enough. Kathy, I wanted to begin with probably the most recent news. There was a failed injunction asking the city to not apply its its bylaw against uh, encampments in, in city parks. And I wanted to start off by getting your initial thoughts on that. Yeah, I was really, I was really disappointed. I sat in by Zoom on part of the hearings, and I felt that... Um, it doesn't quite make sense to me. Like there's a quite a disconnect um, given that the city shelter system is, is full and it's not as if there are uh, hundreds, even a dozen, you know, empty shelter beds just sitting there, let alone new hotels that have come online for shelter use. So, you know, I know the judgment doesn't direct the city <laughs> to, um, do evictions, but it certainly paves the way for them to be more aggressive. And my understanding is as recently as yesterday, two encampments were were evicted. So it's really worrisome. I, I've written to one of the legal folks on the on the team to encourage them to appeal. And that even perhaps the evidence from the the other court case around physical distancing there could be something new there that could add to their case. So we'll just have to wait and see how they feel they can proceed. You you mentioned the other time this year that the, the city has gone to court um, and, and that was over. Uh, they did reach a, a settlement, but uh, mm-hmm. they, they were taken to court uh, over, over shelters and, and the lack of physical distancing there. Yeah, that's the case I was primarily involved in. Mm-hmm. And so that began because back in April, March and April, hundreds of doctors and nurses signed an open letter to uh, Dr. Davila, our medical officer of health, asking her to do a number of uh, orders um, that she can do under the emergency powers. One of them would be to order shelters to physically distance beds, cots, or mats uh, two meters away from each other and she declined and in a public press conference stated that she would prefer that it would be done on a voluntary basis which we did not trust would happen Mm -hmm. partly not out of ill will on shelter providers but like they're in emergency mode they don't have public health 
understanding of issues. They're not health workers, and we felt it needed to be directed, just as eventually mask wearing was directed on TTC, for example. So then uh, a group came together, um, a very strong coalition of legal groups came together and took the city to court on that issue, and an agreement was reached. Mm -hmm. However, um, when the city declared they had met all the everything in the agreement by June 15th, uh, they thought the case would go away. But we had evidence that they had mm -hmm. not met the agreement in all situations. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the legal coalition took the city back to court in September. And last Friday, the judgment came out agreeing that the legal coalition was correct. And the city had professed to be successfully meeting all the agreement that they had not. So now the city has to continue reporting to the legal coalition. We, we should be getting a report from them on Monday. Um, on the status of every shelter in the city and in particular the sites that had not met the physical distancing. So this was quite huge because it meant that the city had to open more and more hotels and move people into hotels and that uh, an enormous level of crowding in shelters was reduced. Mm -hmm. So that has made a huge difference. Right. And you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, you know, people being evicted from the encampments. You know, I, I covered these encampments early on in the pandemic. And what I, what I was told at the time was that nobody is made to leave the encampments who doesn't uh, willingly go and that uh, ev everyone who, is, uh, who leaves the encampments <laughs> is found uh, an alternative place to, to mm -hmm. stay. Like uh, the, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the, uh, the hotels that are popping up uh, to shelter people uh, as an emergency measure. From your experience and from what you're hearing on the ground, is that true? Because I'm seeing a lot of stuff on social media about people being forcibly evicted without an alternative. I've seen rumors of um, tents being slashed by uh, yep. uh, as as a way to sort of scare people off. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly who did it, but um, you know there there are some accusations that it was done in some kind of uh, official capacity. Are you mm -hmm. hearing what are you hearing, and and how do we wade through the what what's true? Yeah. So I'm hearing that from like many, many sources, harm reduction workers, social workers, outreach workers, volunteers who are part of the encampment support network, people from all kinds of different groups. And then I'm hearing the official city line, which is people are only moved when they've been given, uh, I don't know, 10 days notice, something like that, and an offer of a place inside. And, and so unless it's being actively filmed while it's happening or a news outlet is there, it's hard, it's hard to prove, right, what's mm -hmm. really happening. So I just have to believe what I'm hearing on the ground because I know who I'm hearing it from. I think there are really legitimate grievances around the evictions taking place. And it's kind of unfortunate because initially the city uh, early on in the pandemic made a declaration they would not do evictions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they backtracked from that. And, you know, their their big complaint is around safety and fire safety. Yet Toronto Fire Services has, has never done a purposeful walk around at encampments to offer concrete fire prevention strategies. And that might sound silly, but there's a whole bunch they could be doing. Um, 
to to all the encampment support groups. They could be recommending uh, fire safety pits, um, switching from nylon tents to heavier canvas, having pails of sand nearby, any heat source, you know, fire urns. So encampment support folks have been trying to do some of that. In terms of the city's response, uh, at the most recent uh, city council in in September, early October, uh, there was a major vote on uh, a number of housing motions, uh, which uh, included the uh, the interim shelter recovery strategy. That's kind of looking into how are we going to prepare for vulnerable people going into the winter when the pandemic is now approaching a second wave. And I know you've had some time to uh, respond to to those measures. So mm-hmm. does that go far enough? What, what are we seeing and, and what does it entail? So there's a few red flags for me there. One is that um, I'm concerned that they're planning to open a hundred bed facility at the Better Living Center. That would be what we would call a congregate shelter site. And generally the modern thinking on shelters is you don't want to have, you don't want to have a hundred people in a shelter. Right. Um and certainly in a pandemic, you shouldn't be considering it. They're going to experiment with plexiglass dividers. But we've also heard that a few other shelters have been contacted by the city to see if if the use of plexiglass between shelter beds would allow the shelter to increase their numbers. So that's kind of worrisome. Mm-hmm. They have increased their streets, streets to Homes outreach teams, which is... Fantastic, except they have to really give a, an open mandate to those workers to to offer sleeping bags and other kinds of supplies, even on days when it's not an extreme cold alert. Mm-hmm. And then um, warming centers. So they've increased the number of warming centers that will operate during extreme cold alerts, but they're not providing food at them. Right. <laughs> We've also heard that in the weather plan heading into winter that they're they're doing double occupancy in hotel rooms mm-hmm. and that's okay if it's a couple or maybe like best friends that are in like a bubble together even though bubbles aren't supposed to exist any longer right but you know so that that doesn't work and and i think making someone sleep in another room with somebody that's not their partner mm-hmm. like that's that's just not dignified um in terms of a pandemic, it's saying we don't we don't truly value you. It You're, seems like a huge risk. Yeah, yeah, it's very risky, and the science says it's risky. So you know, encampments are going to grow. We haven't even hit the big evictions that are still to come from housing because of the backlog in the in in the courts. But uh, you know, returning to council business, uh, the interim shelter recovery strategy was just one part of a raft of motions, including the housing and people action plan. And, uh, you know, it does mention that they'd like to shift funding from shelters to permanent supportive housing. There's been motions to uh, build and they are building uh, modular housing. Mm -hmm. Does that give you some optimism, uh, you know, that uh, they want to partner with the federal and provincial governments to create 3000 different units um, of various types? When you look at that, does it give you hope and do you think it's going to happen? Well, you have to pardon me if I'm still cynical on it. <laughs> I just am. Um, you know, I, I I go back and forth, you know. So at Ten City, we we fought for modular housing. 
so here we have 100 units under construction right now of approximately 100 at two sites. But modular housing as a focus is really part of what you'd call housing first ideology. Mm-hmm. And it's problematic. I mean, someone used the expression the other day, um, a Band-Aid for stitches. First, I'm a nurse, right? But it took me a minute to get it. So it's like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping issue that really needed stitches. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's um, it's an emergency measure, but it's not a long-term measure. Although I know I realized the modular units will be here long-term. Um, the city is receiving federal money for acquisition of properties to convert and reha- rehabilitate into housing, but they haven't bought one building yet. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a very large bureaucracy and I understand the real estate issue is challenging but one of the most immediate ways that we could get social housing for 2021 would be acquisition now of hotels that are going under or office buildings for sale etc so i'm a little anxious like i know that it will happen because there is money coming for it i'm just anxious that it hasn't happened yet in terms of immediate action you know without without passing another motion or without the appearance of new federal funding or even provincial funding, if that comes, what would you like to see the city do? What, what's the immediate action or just change in, in approach even that you'd like to see going into the winter? So some immediate considerations to provide the public amenities at, at encampments would go a long way to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Some immediate funding by the city to those organizations that are trying to keep lives alive at the encampments, purchasing buildings, using the acquisition money from the federal government, but for a massive, massive refurbishing inside so it can be converted into single room occupancy or bachelors, like within months. There has to be a way to to fast track and make it happen so that there's hope for people. One of the quickest ways to move people into housing that would be private market housing would be through rent supplements. So I know that there are some, but there's not a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I bet there is, there would be a very rare person in an encampment that would turn down an adequate rent supplement that would move them into a private market apartment. So, Things, things like that. Right. And stop being on the defense of telling us we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. Even the judge in our legal case said, that's good, but that's that that's not enough. Right. <laughs> you know, the city needs to actually adopt the understanding that the only protection is one person per room or one couple per room or one family per room. They have to they have to accept that in really reframe their shelter direction mm-hmm. and their rehousing direction for that. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, you're really welcome. Thanks, Clint. Since speaking to Kathy, more happened at City Hall to find emergency funding for housing and shelter and scale up shelter capacity. 
A new shelter, the Better Living Center, opened at Exhibition Place with 100 beds. But not everyone is pleased with the new shelter, and the fate of the roughly 1,000 people living in encampments is still uncertain. Harm reduction worker Zoe Dodd explains. The first thing I wanted to ask you was uh, something that kind of raised my eyebrows at the last council meeting in October, I guess it was. City Council reversed a law I didn't even know was on the books that prohibited uh, giving supplies to things like like the encampments we're seeing today. Yeah, the city made a policy when they created Streets to Home that, that they wouldn't give people winter survival supplies. You know, when I first started in harm reduction, it was like 17, 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we used to get funding for winter survival supplies. We would get funding for sleeping bag programs, giving people TTC transportation so that they could get to appointments or shelters. And when the city created the Streets to Homes program, they got rid of those things. I guess their idea was that this was enabling homelessness by giving people winter survival gear. It's pretty bizarre, mm-hmm. but it's a very, I think it's a very neoliberal ideology. Right. The idea that you can create homelessness, not just that people sometimes experience homelessness and uh, support should be given. That's exactly right. Yeah. That, that, that it, that homelessness is created by a, a structural and systemic issues and it's not by us giving a sleeping bag to someone is not encouraging them to turn around and be like okay i'm gonna sleep outside in a park right like this is not real and the city really cling clinged on to that policy until recently and they have yet to be handing out supplies to people or you know when we had the big winter storm on the weekend they weren't out there helping folks you know reset up their tents or People's tents buckled under the weight of the snow. They didn't, they weren't out there making sure people had tarps for their tents. I mean, we have almost we have over a thousand people living outside right now, and more than that, that's just people in encampments. So they could have been out there helping people too. And this is a housing disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, when I spoke to you at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the city was just beginning to launch a sort of special, you know, a host of different ideas to try and tackle the issue of. Uh, homelessness during the pandemic. Um, we've seen a bunch of those, you know, finding places in hotels, uh, stuff like that for people to live in. And now we're into the winter months. The big news item has has been the shelter. Um, but uh, a, a lot of people in your line of work are, are not uh, necessarily celebrating the opening of this shelter. Uh, I was hoping you could tell tell me a bit about what the people on the ground are, are hearing about this I think people are pretty disappointed when the city decided to open a 100-bed congregate setting that looks like a detention center. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, I think, what we've learned through COVID is that you can get public health advice from a myriad of doctors that will say different contradicting things. They apparently worked with an infectious disease specialist from Women's College Hospital who said that if you make these partitions, that that will be safe for COVID. But what we know about the virus is that it aerosolizes and actually those partitions wouldn't actually uh, stop the virus from spreading. Right. There was a level, a, definitely a level of disappointment and anger from people because we were putting people at risk for COVID and, you know, how come these precautions that we we're all taking to stay at home or, you know, wear a mask and not have social gatherings, that, that doesn't seem to apply when we, we think of the response to homeless people. You know, this 
shelters gone ahead. I mean, on the first few days that they moved people from the park to it, they forced people to take showers as soon as they got there, and the water was cold. Right. And this was October, November? That's that's right. Yeah, in October. That's October, that's pretty yeah. chilly weather for a... It was chilly. It was a cold. It was cold the days that they, they got people to move. So it's just not a process that I think is compassionate or kind. Right. And and when you're talking to people experiencing homelessness or living in the encampments, what are their opinions about this uh, new shelter? I mean, people were really clear, like, why they were living outside. I mean, there were a lot of people who said, like, I don't want to live in a shelter. I don't want to live in a congregate setting and risk getting COVID. Mm-hmm. And this, the city created the opposite of what people were saying that they wanted to live in. But also the city itself, you know, was reduced its occupancy in the shelter system open shelter hotels for physical distancing. How is this, the BLC, the Better Living Center, how does that comply to these, what we know about COVID and the spread of COVID and and what the city itself has undertaken by opening shelter hotels? So it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. And I think it was a shock to homeless people who'd been waiting for months for some new indoor spaces to come online so that they could move inside. And then there were people that went there who were quite shocked by the amount of security cameras and the very dystopian look inside of it and the feeling of prison, which again, people have been saying like, I don't want to live in prison, which is fair. And so yeah, people in the encampments, that's not what people thought was going to come online. They've been waiting for months for a shelter hotel or even housing. So the people were also really clear they didn't want to live really far away. And so the next shelter hotel to come online is quite far from the downtown core. It takes about an hour and a half to travel by bus. So again, both spaces that people have said like would not work for them. And I, and I think it's important to hear that things won't work for people because we know about a third of people that are going to shelter hotels are ending up back in encampments for lots of reasons, reasons to do with being discharged from programs with nowhere else to go not being able to get back inside or a place being too far. There's been lots of deaths in the shelter hotels. And so one death is too many. Mm-hmm. People are feeling like it's safer for them to be in an encampment than far away from their supports. Like we need to listen to people and then actually build solutions that, that will work for folks. Right. And and for listeners, maybe you can explain what why it's important where these hotels or shelters are, are situated as compared to an area like Moss Park, which has a lot of people like you who who are within uh, you know a short walk. Yeah, like a lot of the supports that some people use for their survival are located more centrally. So, you know, I think people need to be close to their supports. We talk a lot about how mental health and isolation is affecting people during COVID. That's the same for people who rely on services and their friends and their community and their family in the neighborhoods that they're from. And so displacement can impact people quite negatively. And returning to the encampments, everyone had been told from the city was that no one was leaving these encampments who didn't want to go, that they were leaving to uh, you know, a, a different place that arrangements had been made. And then I, I go on Twitter and, and I see a lot of people on the front line saying that that's not the case. So what are you hearing from people? Well, um, a lot of the encampment moves that have taken place, there was threats of eviction. People were given hour notices or two-hour notices. Police were present. So people felt coerced into taking something. And there's lots of people who who are happy to take these places. Mm -hmm. But already there's a lot of like heightened anxiety. Like if I don't want to go there, 
will I lose all my stuff anyway? Am I going to be harassed by the police? Where will I go? Everybody's leaving here. And recently, uh, workers were in the park telling people, like offering new spots that came online finally, and also said that evictions are imminent. Like they're, that they're going to take place. Parks will be here with eviction notices to people. That's what people were told. And so for many of us who are frontline workers, you know, that's really upsetting because we can do this in a kind and compassionate way. People are outside because they don't have a home. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to like use punishment or, or coercion or threats of violence, which police and parks are, to force people to take offers. People will go. <laughs> like They don't need to be present. And we don't need to give people eviction notices. If it, if it works for them, they will go, which, you know, people have been waiting to go inside. People want to go inside, too. But the city is now saying that they're not going to evict people from encampments, that they're not going to clear. I was on a phone call today and they were saying that they weren't going to do that. So we'll see what happens. I mean, they are threatening eviction of the the green insulated pods that have been keeping people warm mm-hmm. and also the tiny houses that Khalil has been building and bringing to people in parks. You mentioned the city kind of stepping in and, and trying to remove these tiny homes or these impromptu solutions, you know, to, to deal with a crisis, a, a crisis that existed before the global pandemic. And now there's a pandemic on top of that. There must be frustration when the city talks about the letter of every bylaw, when people are just trying to make do and get by and survive. People are trying to survive. So like if, if we were stranded on an island, the first thing we would do is build a shelter. Like mm-hmm. everybody who's ever watched any survival show, that's the first thing people do. People are just trying to survive outside and, and from the elements. So, you know, an insulated pod, those, those keep people warm to, to minus 20. They're heated up by body heat. The city is saying that they're a fire hazard. They're extremely hazardous. And yet they are actually fire prevention because then people aren't doing things like lighting a candle to keep warm in a tent, which starts a fire. Right. And it's like homeless people can't win. It's so it's like, let's remove the things that will keep you warm. And, and then let's just like, let you suffer through this because we all know that it's very hard to find a place to live and it's impossible to find a place to live. If you don't have ID or you have bad credit or you don't have enough income, which like social assistance can't afford you. So, you know, we have this like massive crisis and we don't need to harm people. Like the city could work with people so that they can stay while more spaces come online, while the city works to like figure out this housing disaster. I imagine you you and your colleagues do speak with the city and, and with the local councillors. Are they receptive to your concerns? Has, has, has there been much movement throughout this pandemic and uh, to, you know, put some of these ideas into action? Uh, city councillors do not talk to me anymore. I used to have a better working relationship with them. But since the pandemic's taken off, they feel like there's a big fracture between advocates in the city. And so they've just stopped talking to some of us. They've taken it really personally. You know, I'm not a politician. I didn't run for office to represent people, but they did. And so they're elected and they represent constituents in their ward. So if they have hurt feelings about the ways in which people have gone about things, they need to get some thicker skin around it because these are really serious issues. People are dying on the streets. And as far as like tables go, the city has an internal encampment table, but those who do outreach in the neighborhood or supporting people on the encampment, they're not a part of those tables. So then the city doesn't get to hear directly from 
folks who are supporting people, you know, why people are returning or what the needs are from people. They only speak to their internal folks. So it's parks, fire, police, streets to homes, and they're not speaking with other people. So hopefully that can be rectified and the city can create a table that actually includes people who are act- who are doing this encampment support and have been for the last eight to nine months. We're heading into a season that is long and dark and very cold and sometimes dangerous, deadly. Uh, it's also a time when a lot of organizations actually do a lot of work to to try and address people who are living uh, rough, uh, you know, who need food, who need shelter, all those kinds of things. What is your message to people if they want to help going into a Canadian winter? Say, if you see people outside, go outside to them, bring them stuff yourself. Like we have to show mutual aid to people. Organizations are really stretched. The Encampment Support Network is a group of volunteers. Those folks have just been going out to help in the gaps that like we as workers, we just can't fill all of that. The need is so great. We do other things as well on top of like going to support people. And so I would just say to, to folks that this affects all of us, the housing disaster outside, especially those of us who are renters. We're also watching the mass evictions of renters who weren't able to pay their rent. Mm -hmm. Like we need to be in solidarity with each other because these issues affect everybody. And so that solidarity, it needs to come from like continuously advocating for each other to like making sure you're checking on each other outside. Right. And I am deeply worried about the winter. There's been an escalation of deaths and it just keeps climbing. My coworkers have responded to people who are dead outside you know, some people pulled from the porta potties in Moth Park where they could just open the washrooms and have them staffed and people could like go to use those plus have showers. The community center washrooms. The community center washrooms, the arena that's right. there. Um, the city today announced that they expand washroom access, not for the people who are in encampments, but for people who are doing recreation activities. And we need to hold our city accountable for. So providing people some basic necessities, we've been in this disaster and they have just not been doing that. So I think as we go into the winter, we really need people to be paying attention. And those of us who have the privilege to do so, to hold those in office accountable for the decisions that they're making and make sure that the people who are left outside or and people who are struggling or who could end up outside, that we support each other. I'm not the first to say the line about how we're all in this together is a bunch of nice-sounding, utter nonsense. That COVID does not affect everyone equally, but drives the wedge between the haves and have-nots even further. But when people are doing what they can to survive, or help people in dire need, and even those desperate efforts are thwarted, that nice-sounding platitude is almost sickening. I haven't been able to find out for once and for all what will happen to the encampment population, I can only tell you they're scared. And that the people who work with them daily are scared. Recently, a notice was posted saying annual Moss Park sprinkler maintenance required pretty much everyone in the encampment to pack up and move. That maintenance is scheduled for the day this podcast comes out, and I truly dread what might happen. And when people like Zoe Dodd are shut out by local councillors, 
they have no way of knowing what the future holds for the people they work so hard to support. I made no effort to have a city councillor on this episode, or ask city staff why they're shuttering community fridges and banning emergency shelters. They have a guaranteed platform. They can call up the media whenever they want, so long as they're prepared for the follow-up questions. Local government has the unenviable task of creating policies that anticipate every possible outcome, slippery slope, and liability. And city staff are paid to implement those policies. But when these policies start to get in the way of people who, out of true desperation, are literally doing what they have to to survive, then we really can't say we're in this together. Can we even say we're on the same side? And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please share, subscribe, or give us a quick rating on iTunes. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca You can visit our website at spacing.ca for more pandemic coverage. Under the new lockdown, our city store at 401 Richmond Street West is open for curbside pickup, or you can visit spacingstore.ca where you can pick up Kathy Crow's book A Knapsack Full of Dreams, Memoirs of the Street Nurse, among other things. In the meantime, do stay safe.